0: I always uh, hate to break up such warm fellowship. We do have a lot to cover this morning, however. Uh, you might often, when you look up the Ten Commandments, you'll see uh, preachers and churches often like to give a separate week to each, in each, each commandment, but I thought we'd, uh, we'd zip through them uh, this morning. Um, a Sunday school teacher was once uh, teaching her class uh, about the Ten Commandments, and of course, She got to the section, which is very important for all Sunday school teachers teachers to teach their kids about honouring your father and your mother. The teacher then asked the kids, "Now, can you think of a commandment that teaches you how you should treat your brothers and your sisters?" And without a moment's hesitation, little Johnny shot up his hand and said, "You shall not murder." Friends, I want to start this morning, and not with the Ten Commandments, but actually with a psalm. We're talking about the law today. This is God's law. This is God is now uh, gonna ha- hand right by his own finger on some stone tablets. The really his very high-level law, the Ten Commandments, and what follows is a whole bunch of, of laws that follow. But the Ten Commandments started off. And are really the, his base laws, a whole bunch of the case law that follow. But seeing as we are talking about law, which can often be a bit of a, people think is a bit of a downer, I want to share with you Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. Have, have a listen to this, what the psalmist says about the law. If you've got it open, you, you can quickly flick over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. The psalmist says this The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Oh, wow, you're very quick, Tina. Thank you. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So despite being perhaps one of the most famous pieces of writing in all of history, But the Ten Commandments do get a bit of a bad rap, don't they? People think it's just a bunch of of rules and regulations, and nobody likes being told what to do. It's these out-of-date laws, and I don't, you know, it's so restrictive, and I, you know, don't tell me what to do. But the Psalmist says that no, no, and and I'm here to say this morning that no, no, by following God's good life-giving laws is actually the way to find life, abundant life, life to the full. These commandments are, in fact, away from God, telling us how to live the good life, the life as it was designed to be lived by the master creator himself. Now, by the way, before we get into them, um, you don't, they won't actually find them called commandments anywhere in the text. If anything, they're God's ten words to us. You might sometimes hear them referred to as the Decalogue, uh, Dec meaning ten and Logos meaning word, the, the ten words to us. But they are certainly commandments, so there's, there's no problem with calling them that. The problem really is that people simply don't like being told uh, what to do. Uh, Indeed, uh, back in 2014, some secular humanists decided they would come up with an alternate set of of Ten Commandments. In fact, they called them Ten Non-Commandments, and they crowdfunded them, they crowdsourced them. They offered uh, $10,000 to any would-be Moses out there. They could come up with with Ten Non-Commandments for the modern age. So they compiled a a team of judges and came up with the following 10 winners. So here are the non-commandments of our age, which at first blush seem quite reasonable. I don't necessarily disagree with many. One, be open-minded, be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Uh, Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not what you wish to be true. Uh, The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Every person has the right to control their body. God uh, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Be mindful of the consequences of your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Treat others the way that you would want to be treated. Uh, the the way that you would reasonably expect them uh, to treat you. Think about their perspective. Uh, We have a responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there is no one right way to live. And number ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. Sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good. I don't necessarily disagree with with most of those. Um, The problem is if you do scratch beneath the surface a bit, you will find that there are some pretty... Stunning contradictions. Apart from the fact that the scientific method comes down to us from Christian scientists like Francis Baker. I mean, how do you you make sense of the ninth non-commandment that in fact there is no one way to live when in fact they are telling you ten ways to live? You might remember a few years back as well, the British government decided they were going to poll the public to find the wisdom of the public about naming their new Arctic Explorer ship, do you remember this? A few years back, they got a flash new ship, and they wanted to ask members of the British public what they thought they should name this new ship. They even made some suggestions—very heroic names like Attenborough and uh, Endeavour, and uh, uh, all sorts of very, you know, very strong. Uh, Shackleton was another one of their suggested, but the, the runaway choice, the runaway choice by far the public opinion's choice for this flash new boat was Boaty McBoatface. That was the (laughs) public opinion's uh, desire for their new boat. Asking people to tell you what they think is right, what they think is true, is, is not a recipe for success. In fact, we can clearly see that throughout the 20th century with the history of atheistic sort of communism that decided to reject God. The consequences were devastating. A hundred million dead throughout the 20th century by putting all the really clever people in charge. We put all the really clever, enlightened, educated people in charge. Things will go well. Well, in fact, it didn't go so well. In fact, it ended tragically every single time, in fact, that it's, it's ever been char- ever been tried when you erase God from society and let people decide what is what is right and true. And even democracy, even democracy, we're starting to see now, even that really isn't all that it's sometimes cracked up to be, because it too can simply descend into being simply, well, the majority imposing its will upon the minority. The majority opinion just takes the place of Pharaoh, or the king, or, or the emperor. And if the people's will turns tyrannical, then... Well, I'm sorry, but the people have spoken. When left unchecked, we humans will eventually revert back to Pharaoh's kingdom of of might makes right rather than God's good life-giving commands. Politicians after an election are well known for saying, well, the people are always right, aren't they? It's a very gracious thing to say when you're on the losing end. Of course, the, the people's opinion, the people's will is always right. It's a good sentiment, a nice sentiment, but it's not really true when you think about it, is it? I mean, were the German people right in voting the way they did in 1936, for example? Just because something's popular doesn't mean that it's right or good. But in contrast, submitting yourself to, and your nation to God's good life-giving precepts is the most assured path to peace and, peace and prosperity and, and human flourishing. So when someone asks, who are you subject to? Who, who ultimately are you accountable to? Or, or says, who, who died and made you king or queen to say what's right? Or, or when you're asked, what do you think is the best way to live? We, we have an answer. We have an answer. We say, yes, God has, has told us. His divine revelation shows us the way to live. He's the ultimate authority regardless of or the many ways that human wisdom might package itself. We respond that God's laws, the Ten Commandments, chief among them, are God's sovereign direct revelation about how we should order our society. It's only by following God's laws. Only by doing that can we have a a proven historic track record of producing human flourishing throughout history. And what makes these Ten Commandments so revolutionary is that even Moses, even the king and the queen were subject to these commandments. No one was above them. This is unheard of at the time. It's no exaggeration to say that these Ten Commandments have perhaps been the most influential piece of law ever given. So whether or not you believe in them or not, whether you believe them, you think they're right or not, it, it should be of interest to you, even just in terms of curiosity's sake in world history, especially Western history such as our own, that we shouldn't be ignorant of them. So let's get to the text uh, today, the context of today's reading. If you've been following along with us here at Church in the Marketplace, if, if you're new, know that God's people have been slaves in Egypt for about 400 years at this point, but are now free. Moses has famously gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, but not just let my people go, let my people go in order that they may worship me. Well, they're now at Mount Sinai. Uh, that wasn't always what has happened. They've always haven't been terribly worshipable. There've been some mumbling and some grumbling. Um, so knowing that his people would need to be shown the way to live free, to live well, God gives them this law, starting with the Ten Commandments as guideposts to the good life. Let's have a look. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through to 21. And God spoke these words. I am... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or the the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation, of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall do your labor and work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor your male nor female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female servant, nor his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet that saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you. So the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Church, let's pray. Loving Lord, as we come to explore these ten life-giving rules for life, we pray that you might come alive to us through the pages of Scripture. These are familiar to many of us, Father, so we pray that we might see something new, something fresh. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. Pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And The people said, Amen. Now, I want to be crystal clear this morning. Uh, following these commandments is not how we gain salvation. This is not how we get to heaven. Uh, we know that as followers of Jesus Christ, John three sixteen tells us that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son. God himself broke into human history to pay the price for our sin. All we have to do is accept the gift of salvation for the free gift of that it is for the, in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, by submitting to him and yielding our life, we are, we are saved. By trusting on him is how we are saved. So it's important to note that this law that God has now given comes after Israel's deliverance from slavery. The order is important here. God didn't go to the people in Egypt and say, no, Okay, guys, I realize you're in slavery. Now here's Ten Commandments, and I'm going to come back in a year or two, and if you've been following them, then I'll bring you out of slavery. That's not how it worked. God graciously, sovereignly brought them out of slavery. They are now free. Salvation and liberty has been granted to them by God. And now he's giving them uh, some some rules for living to ensure that they remain free. Uh, I know that this is how a lot of people think of the Christian faith. that You've got to earn God's love. If you keep a whole bunch of commandments, then you will earn God's love and he'll have to let you into heaven. But that's not the story of of Exodus, and it's not the Christian story either. The good news is that we are saved, we are liberated, we are set free from sin and and death. And and then as a result of it, we will want to live God's good life-giving way. I came across this little saying, and I think it's really profound. Have a listen to this. Salvation is not a reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. I'll say that again. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. We don't get saved because we are obedient. Salvation is the reason for obedience. We are obedient because we have been saved. So the Ten Commandments do not earn us our freedom, but they show us how to live out that freedom that we've received from God. And contrary, popular, popular, contrary to, popular, to popular belief, these commands not take away our freedom, they protect us. They guide us. They protect those around us. A loving parent, of course, puts some life-giving boundaries around their children while they are young. A a parent who lets their children do whatever they want to have complete and utter freedom actually isn't really giving their child freedom. They're condemning their child to really a mindset of a a selfish mindset, a self-serving mindset, a self-centred mindset, a self-referential mindset, and ultimately to a a self-defeating existence, I think. I like to think of the Ten Commandments as, as guardrails on a steep mountain path, put there for our good. Someone, someone at great expense went to the trouble of putting them there to, to protect us. Likewise, a Heavenly Father has given us some, some boundaries to keep us safe, to prevent us from slipping back into slavery and, and sin. I mean, can you imagine what society would be like if we all obeyed the ten commandments it'd be a wonderful place we wouldn't need jails or police or or the court system we wouldn't need patent laws or copyright laws or defamation laws what a wonderful world it it would be if everyone obeyed the the ten commandments these are the basic tenets for a just society a, a healthy society a civil society with peace and with human flourishing these are founding principles that are followed by a whole series. You look in the following chapters, a whole series of, of regulatory statutes. So you might like to think of the Ten Commandments as sort of like a constitution followed by a series of case law. We might like to think of it in, in that way. So the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is a word from God to former slaves about how to ensure their perpetual freedom. They're given for our free people in order to stay free. By the way, the Ten Commandments are, are also central in the, in the ethics of the New Testament as well. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a, not just a Jewish uh, thing. Uh, Jesus himself quotes the New Commandment, the Ten Commandments when he's asked by the rich young ruler what must he do to be saved. Paul also in Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 1 gives a summary of what it means to live out your faith as a follower of Jesus by, by quoting the Ten Commandments. And remember, Jesus in Matthew 5 famously said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. So you might like to think of the Ten Commandments and the law in general as like a spiritual MRI, a sort of a, a diagnosis. It doesn't actually do the healing. The law doesn't actually do the healing. Rather, it, it points out where we're sick and hopefully puts us on the path to, to healing and wholeness. The law shows us our sin and leads us to the cross of Christ for healing. The law reveals the patterns of God's reality that that he created. We ignore his diagnosis to our peril. So again, the law is the path to to the good life, to abundant life. So let's quickly have a look at each of these ten commandments. Uh, Like I said, a lot of preachers spend a week on each commandment, but I want to quickly just buzz through, maybe just share a new angle or insight which you might not have seen before. I certainly have learnt a lot this week. The first one, you shall have no other gods but me. This is revolutionary. God is our ultimate authority. God is to be our number one, our undisputed number one. What is revolutionary about this is that if God is number one. If God is our ultimate authority, it stops people from being the ultimate authority. It stops any king or tyrant or ruler from claiming ultimate authority authority. Back in Egypt, of course, Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. He had supreme power. But really, let's be honest, there's a little bit of Pharaoh in each of us, isn't there? Deep within the human condition. We all like to be God. We all like to control. We all like to have our own way. We all want to be, we want to rule. I want to rule not just in my own life, but even in my interactions with others. It'd be good if I could control them as well this compulsion to make ourselves God. We don't really say it as explicitly as that. We don't say it aloud as, like that. But basically, each of us have a tendency to sort of elevate ourselves to God-like status. So if you care about making a good world, you've got to make sure that we make God God, that no other God is at work in your life trying to create the good life for yourself and others. So let me quickly ask, have you tried to make a God? Have you been making a God out of something other than God? Your work, your, your family, your resume perhaps, your money, your relationships, your, your family, your hobby, or even just the great Aussie pastime of pursuing pleasure, the great Aussie pastime of hedonism can be a, a God for many people, I, re- I reckon. So why not run a spiritual MRI over, over your life today and see if you've been elevating anything other than God himself to godlike status in your life the second commandment to not make any images is is very similar this separates god the creator from his created order this again is revolutionary the ten commandments are revolutionary at a time when creation itself was worshiped in a way that frankly is starting to creep back into western mindset with with gaia and worship of of mother mother earth Um, the Talmud, which is sort of like a Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, it's the second most holy book in, in, in the Jewish faith, it actually says that if you keep these first two commandments, you'll actually follow the other 613 that follow. So these first two together is God saying, don't confuse me with the created order. Don't, don't elevate anything in his creation to be God and don't bring God down into the created order. Third commandment is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Now, historically, if you grew up in the church, of course, many of us think of this as a, as, as a prohibition against using God's name as a swear word. Now, that's good advice, I think, and I still wince a little bit inside when someone takes the Lord's name in vain, when they, use, when they say God or, or Jesus Christ as a, in a way that is that is is not honouring to him or when they hit their thumb with a hammer or or something bad happens. I I think that's good advice, but I want to say this morning, this command actually runs deeper than that. This is actually about not co-opting God into your agenda. This is, the beating heart here is, is actually a prohibition against using the authority of God, against using God's name to flex your own power. Your own authority, for your own ends. That is saying, God says you must obey me. Or using God for your own ends. It's, it's making, you see how it's, it's making God serve you rather than bending your knee before God. Tyrants down through the ages have tried to do this, of course, to claim God's authority, to manipulate and to control and to abuse. Fourth commandment is keep the Sabbath holy. Now, the Sabbath, interestingly, is the only ritual in the Ten Commandments. It's one of only two positive commandments this one and the next one. Uh, remember, holy means to be set apart. We're called to set apart the Sabbath. Holy means to be set apart, or other than, or higher than, or, or special. So, the Sabbath mercifully, lovingly sets limits on production. It ensures rest for everyone. Again, this is revolutionary in its time. Even the servants get a rest. Even the foreigners get a rest. Even the animals get a rest. Of course, this stands in stark contrast to the hard labour they've been enduring are back in Egypt. It's protection for the vulnerable people. And it's huge in our society still today, I think, isn't it? We're so zealous to produce wealth as a way to sort of puff myself up, to give myself meaning and, and, and purpose, to sort of identify myself rather than just simply resting in knowing that I'm God's precious child and, and resting in that and defining myself by my, by my relationship with God rather than all of my stuff. I think, too, keeping the Sabbath is also a good way of staying humble. It says, the world doesn't depend on me. Ministers need to hear this. I'm sure many of us need to hear this. The world doesn't rely on you. You can take a day off and the world will still keep on spinning. Amen? So it's actually a testimony to the world that we have a higher end, that we trust God to keep the world spinning, that I can unburden myself and take a day of rest. It's also, of course, an echo of creation, isn't it? It's an echo of creation, God resting on the on the seventh day. It's when we observe a Sabbath, we're saying to the world, no, no, this world wasn't created by some random cosmic fluke. God made this world, not chance. It's a countercultural rebuke these days. So a lot of what the world will want to try to teach our kids and teach us, that no, no, we can rest in God's love. It is God who made the world and everything that is in it. So let me ask you, if I come to your house on a, on a Sunday or whenever you take a a day off. Uh, Friday's my, my Sabbath these days. Um, would it be special? Would anyone know that it's set apart? Is it holy? How would I, how would I know that your Sabbath is, is set apart or is it just like any other day of the week? It's something that I think we've really lost, lost touch of in Western society and probably lost touch of in the Protestant church a little bit, I think, and I think we're the poorer for it. Um, our Jewish friends, of course, since moving to the eastern suburbs, I've gotten to know a lot more about Judaism than any Hills boy has ever known from Galston. And, and look, I think many of you will realise our Jewish friends take their Sabbath very seriously, don't they? Friday night is Shabbat. They, they gather as a family and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's important. It's one of the ways that they've really maintained their identity as a, as a culture while being immersed in other cultures down through the, down through the millennia. I heard one of my favourite commentators, Dennis Prager, who's a, a Jewish um, scholar, tell a story about how he invited a friend around to his house for Shabbat. And such was the effort and the commitment that this family exhibited in keeping the Sabbath that his friend exclaimed, you have Christmas every Friday night. What a challenge for we Christians, yeah? To keep, uh, to keep the Sabbath, to make sure that we are declaring to the world, no, no, I'm resting, I'm taking a day of rest, relying on God, letting go for a day. There's much more we could say about that. But number five, honour your father and your mother. Now this command is seemingly on the wrong tablet, isn't it? Uh, the first four about our sort of our, our vertical relationship uh, with, with, with God. And uh, but this one is sort of turns sideways horizontally about how we about how we relate to each other. So the first four about a horizontal rela- uh, vertical relationship. Um, with God. It sort of seems to be a bit of a linchpin, a turning point between the vertical and the horizontal. It's like honoring our parents is a sort of takes our gaze from God and then turns it horizontally to how we should be relating justly to one another here on earth. It's almost as though honoring our parents is the conduit or, or the link between our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Now, the base compulsion of of humankind, and indeed the work of the enemy, is that we would rebel against authority. We we buck against authority. But God is saying, no, no, you need to respect authority. Starting with with your parents. Every tyranny down through the ages has sought to dismantle the authority of of the home, of the family unit. They know that the family unit is where people are shaped, where children are Are shaped that have always sought to undermine the authority of of the family unit. And and, but God knows that strong families make for for strong societies. One Jewish commentator I heard this week was asked, actually asked his elderly father um, how society had changed since he was a kid. And his response was very telling: The kids rule the house. Respect your honor. honor or respect your your mother and your father, regardless of how old you get to be. You shall not murder, is is number six. These final um, five commands protect the integrity of life, of family, of property, and of reputation. In God's kingdom, we see that there is a real respect for human life. Again, this is revolutionary stuff for most of human history. And in many places still today, human life is is cheap. It's expendable as far as the the powerful are concerned. If you wanted something, you took it, including another person's life. But again, here we see God being revolutionary in his time, making provision to protect the weak and the vulnerable. You might want to note that um, this command is, is, is not do not kill. There are two Hebrew words, one for murder and one for kill. This is the word for murder. So it does apparently seem there are times when a a follower of the Ten Commandments might be allowed to kill. We're not necessarily called to be pacifists, although, of course, many Christians down through the ages have believed uh, that to be the case. Happy to have a chat with you uh, and and have a chat further about that, about do not kill, but I think that one's fairly self-explanatory. But it does seem as though The Ten Commandments leaves open the possibility of taking a life perhaps in just war or in self-defence perhaps. The word is not kill, the word is murder. And there's two different ones. Uh, The Seventh Commandment is you shall not commit adultery. Uh, Marriage and sex are two of God's greatest gifts to us, of course. There's no relationship that is uh, more intimate, of course, than than a marriage. And sex is, of course, one of the most intimate and, and powerful experiences of of the human experience, and, and, and God has designed them to work together. Uh, God takes sexual purity very, very seriously. So, of course, the devil is going to want to try to, to undermine these two great gifts that, that God has given us. So, despite all the, the government sponsored promotion and le- legitimization of all manner of immorality that we see plastered in our in our schools and in our hospitals and footpaths and trains and buses and beaches, God's consistent teaching about sexuality is that it's designed for the exclusive lifelong relationship between a man and a woman that we call marriage. Here it's specifically about adultery. It's breaking yours or somebody else's marriage vows. It's devastating because adultery undermines paternal certainty, doesn't it? And paternal or a father's certainty reduces a father's commitment to children, which is always devastating in society because it takes such a long time, so much effort and expense to raise a human child. So again, God is here giving us some life-giving boundaries, both as individuals and as society here. Uh, the eighth commandment is you shall not steal again God is protecting the weak and the vulnerable at this point. our base human compulsion is very powerful it is to take advantage of the weak if you can take it if you can get away with it. the law of the jungle holds sway let's be honest in, in large parts of the world still today what I found interesting about this commandment this week I learned something new that Uh, The Jewish people, the Talmud, have always understood this commandment, first and foremost, to be about stealing a human life. It's a prohibition against kidnapping and slavery. You're not to steal, including another human. You hear a lot of nonsense talked about slavery and the Bible, but here it is, right at the Ten Commandments, a prohibition against stealing another human being. And think, too, there really can be no stability trust in a society that doesn't respect property rights. It is such a blessing. We don't really see it, but it is such a blessing to live in a society where we trace our laws back to these Ten Commandments where private property is respected. The title deeds to your house actually mean something in this society. You can wave a bit of paper about in other societies, but if might makes right, what people can come and simply take your home, then it's not much of a society, and I certainly wouldn't want to live in it. Your title deeds to your house don't mean much unless society is willing to uphold them. The ninth commandment is to not give false testimony against your neighbor. You, quite often we think of this as do not lie, um, and that's kind of the gist of it, of course, but the context here is, has sort of a, a legal sort of a framework here. It sort of has the context of a of a courtroom. Um, witnesses were everything in the, in the ancient world. Of course, today, witnesses are important as well. But today in the courtrooms, we have all sorts of we have DNA testing and, and video recordings. They didn't have any of that. They had eyewitnesses. So if you want, someone wanted to stand up in a court and accuse you of doing something wrong, and if they could get a second person to stand up and say the same thing, well, your life was, could be in jeopardy lies hurt people deeply. So this command is meant to protect life, it's meant to protect reputation and marriages, property and to protect honour. God cares very much about justice. Both then and now in many parts of the world, the weak really have no effective legal protection. But in God's kingdom we see this command in command 9 that There shall be integrity and impartiality in the judicial system. Good justice provides good, thriving societies. And finally, number 10, you shall not covet. To covet is to yearn for something um, that belongs to another person. The Bible speaks against this sin of coveting, by the way, um, in in the strongest of terms. In Romans 1, Paul includes it in quite a list He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them over to a debased mind uh, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. So covetousness is named there with evil and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips. In Ephesians 5, he says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. So note, coveting is is not simply having desires. It's not having ambition. The Tenth Commandment does not prohibit every kind of longing or want or or, or your thoughts of wanting to have something better. That's not what it's about. Nothing's wrong per se with, with wanting a nice house or a nice car, or a nice wife, or, or husband, or let's be honest, for many people, simply wanting food on the table or a roof over, over your head. It's a problem, however, when you want his wife, or her house, or his car. One way of looking at this commandment is to see that it's an internalisation of the seventh and eighth commandments. It moves from do not steal or commit adultery to don't even desire, to take what doesn't belong to you. Our problem is not that we desire things. Our problem is that we desire the wrong things. We desire, we desire the right things in the wrong way. C.S. Lewis famously uh, described the problem. He said, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I like that. We chase after the world's fleeting pleasures. But God doesn't say to us, shame on you for wanting things. He simply says, I can give you so much better and things that are more lasting than these trivial trinkets that we sometimes chase after. So in closing, I want us to note uh, the thunder and lightning at the end of this this passage is immediately after the Ten Commandments are given. The the people are are terrified, terrified. God's laws are cosmic in their significance. Uh, I think we're so desperate sometimes to make God not look terrifying that we knock the teeth out of the, the line of, of, of Judah. God is, is, is terrifying. Lord is tremendous and mighty. There needs to be a good, healthy fear and respect and reverence for what he tells us. If you know the story, you'll know that while Moses is, is up the mountain, getting the law, the people are, are rebelling against God, worshipping a golden calf that they've made, which they've covenanted not to do. And there's a lot of people end up getting killed as, as a result. God is very, very serious about his life-giving laws. The law immediately imprisons us all to sin. Let's remember that the law is like an MRI. It shows us that we're imperfect It shows us that we know that we are sinners. It shows us that we all will indeed fall short. And in fact, Jesus takes these Ten Commandments, doesn't he? And he amplifies them. He says, well, even if you look lustfully at your neighbor's wife, you've committed adultery. Even if you have hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder in in your heart. So these commands let us know that I'm a sinner in need of a saviour. But there is a day coming according to Galatians and it's prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah when the law will not be external but it will be written on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, God says, I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So friend, in closing, if you've been convicted by anything this morning or by one or more of these commandments, I know I have been as you read through them. The good news this morning that I have for you is that there is no sin with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? The good news this morning is that grace has made a way. The good news this morning is that we can be washed clean wider than the snow, despite whatever might be in our past. Grace has made a way for us to once again be in right relationship with God. I'll leave you with Romans chapter 6, verses 6 to 80. Paul says, Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power over our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Praise God. Can I get an hallelujah? We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. Friend, die to yourself today. Live in Christ, shunning sin, and live the good life in this life and the next. Amen? Amen. As our band comes up, I might just pray for us Say, so Let's pray. Our loving and gracious God, thank you for your life-giving law. Thank you for these guardrails. Thank you for these pointers, these directions to the good life. Thank you for this spiritual MRI. Father, we pray that we might take heed of what we see We pray that we might be called, Father, to true abundant life by submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ, knowing that he has paid the price for all of our missteps, all all of our sin, all the ways in which we hurt ourselves and those around us, all the ways in which we grieve you. We throw ourselves upon your mercy and upon your grace once more, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the saving grace that is made freely available to all through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ.